0: You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, ready to take you through another season of Gonzaga Hoops. Today's episode is brought to you by Sonos. Sonos is the official partner of ESPN College Football. Go to Sonos.com to learn more. Also, I want to sincerely thank all of you for making this podcast your very first listen of the day. Some of you have been with me from the beginning. Some of you are much, much newer to the show Either way, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen. And now, officially, for some of you to watch the show, we are officially set up on YouTube. Those of you who are watching today's episode will notice that I got myself a ring light and a new webcam. Things look spiffy now, so come check it out if you haven't yet already. And if you have, please, please, please hit that subscribe button. We're trying to get to 200 subscribers before Gonzaga takes on Duke on Friday. We are about halfway there. I'm fully confident that Zag Nation, the Gonzaga community, can get me to 200 subscribers before that game. So please, please, please search Locked On Zags on YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. I sincerely appreciate it. I teased the Duke game, but as you probably have heard, it's a pretty big week in Gonzaga land right now. Gonzaga, of course, has three games in the next five days, depending on when you're listening to this. They'll take on Central Michigan on Monday evening at 8 p.m. They have UCLA. Huge game. One versus two. The first time, according to Jim Meehan of the sports Spokesman Review, the first time that the number one and the number two teams have faced off, and both of them have been from the West Coast. Super awesome that Gonzaga is a part of that, although... We are not surprised in any way. And then, of course, Gonzaga takes on Duke on Friday. Huge week. I got five episodes coming your way. I'm going to record two of them on Wednesday evening so I can take a little break on Thanksgiving. But you're going to get all five of your episodes. I'm super excited for this week. I'm sure all of you are, too. And part of the reason I can tell is because we got a jam-packed Mailbag Monday episode coming at you today Tons of great questions we're talking all about. UCLA, of course. We're talking Duke. We're talking about some of the players on Gonzaga's roster. We're talking WCC, just about everything covered in today's episode. Just a reminder for those of you who want to get involved in Mailbag Monday, there are three ways to do so. You can tweet at me at ScoreZagScore or at LockedOnZagS Whenever you're thinking of a question, it helps if you tag it Mailbag Monday, but even if you don't, I'll write it up, I'll get it in my notes, I'll get it in the show before Sunday afternoon or evening when I record. I also tweet on Sunday mornings asking for questions. You can respond to that tweet to ensure that you will get in the show. I also take questions via Facebook, Instagram, or my email, which you can find at andypatton 13 at gmail.com. If you reach out that way, I will be sure to get your questions into the show as well. All right, that's enough preamble. Tons of questions to go over today. This first one comes from Christian via Gmail. He says, how do you see this week playing out? It is an exciting week of games. You have discussed before that the UCLA and Duke games being so close together presents a unique challenge. What players do you predict might get some minutes in one or both of these games based on matchups? So, yeah, I think I think it's very, very possible, realistic the Zags go 3-0. Number one team in the country, you you're never not favored to win, and even though this is a really tough stretch of games, Gonzaga can come out of this three zero. I also I gotta say I wouldn't be shocked if they go two and one. It's a really tough slate of games playing UCLA less than 24 hours after playing Central Michigan. Central Michigan's not a great team. Uh, we're not gonna dedicate a ton of time to a pre uh, pre uh, review of them as a team, but. It's still tough to play two Division I teams within 24 hours, especially when one of them is one of the best teams in the country. It's going to be an emotional game because basically UCLA is returning all of the same players from last year's game. Of course, the Jalen Sugg shot. So they're going to be amped up. They really want to win this one. Mick Cronin's a good coach. It's going to be a super tough one to do that after having played a game less than 24 hours previously. Super tough. And then only getting a two-day break. Before you take on Duke, another super emotional game, another hyper talented squad, another well coached team. This is a lot that Gonzaga has to deal with this week. Uh, In terms of kind of what players I expect to play, I think the Central Michigan game will see a lot of reserves. We'll see a lot of Ben Gregg, a lot of Caden Perry, a lot of Nolan Hickman, Hunter Salas, because Gonzaga is going to give Drew Timmy more of a break. They're going to give Andrew Nempard more of a break. They're going to give Rasir Bolton more of a break uh, because I just think that's the best thing to do, to have those guys as fresh as possible for UCLA and Duke. Uh, And then in terms of matchups for UCLA and Duke, excuse me, we can move on to this next question, which comes from B. Mary Zag on Twitter, who asks, "Which matchups are you most looking forward to seeing against UCLA and Duke this week?" Yeah, so for UCLA, I'm really excited to see how Gonzaga defends Johnny Juzang, which we're going to talk about more later in the show, so I'll skip that for now, uh, and then of course how the matchup between Andrew Nempart and Tiger Campbell. UCLA is really, really dynamic, speedy a talented five-foot-eleven point guard goes. I think the nemhard tiger Campbell matchup is a big one. I'm also really curious to see how the heck UCLA is going to try to guard Drew Timmy and Chet Holmgren. Nobody has successfully figured out a way to handle both of those guys. We talk about how, what's Gonzaga going to do when they face another team with real size? Obviously, Texas had more size, although they, they didn't have a bunch of size. They had some, and Drew Timmy scored 37 points. UCLA doesn't have a ton of size. Either this isn't Purdue or some of those other teams with a bunch of big dudes. UCLA has Miles Johnson. He's very talented, six foot ten big man. But other than that, this isn't a really big team. So trying to handle both Drew Timmy and Chad Holmgren is not going to be easy for the Bruins. But again, this UCLA team has a ton of depth. A ton of talented players, a very experienced squad. They're familiar with each other. That's going to make this a tough matchup. Uh, there's a lot of players we didn't even mention. We'll mention some of them later. But there's a lot of matchups that are going to be super interesting in this game. For Duke, obviously the big matchup is Palo Banchero versus Chet Holmgren. That is what everybody's going to be watching for, all the national media, everybody who's not a Gonzaga or Duke fan. That is the number one reason to watch this game. I get it. It's going to be super exciting. They're both hyper-talented young men true freshman obviously Banchero being from Washington being a Gonzaga recruit before he chose to go to Duke makes that matchup even more interesting beyond that I think it'll be interesting to see how Gonzaga tries to defend Wendell Moore that's that's Duke's best player outside of Banchero he's a super talented young man six foot five combo guard can do a lot of different things with the basketball he's going to be tough he's going to be tough to guard and I think I'm curious whether Gonzaga turns to their their length on the bench, whether it's Hunter Salas or whether it's Anton Watson, which kind of leads into the next question from Justin Owens at Modern Farmer USA on Twitter, who asks, Who emerges as an unlikely hero in Vegas giving the personnel matchups? Starting to see the theme here in the first segment. A lot of matchup conversation with these two games uh, for the, against the Bruins and the Blue Devils. Yeah, I think Anton Watson's going to have his hands full. This weekend, this week, I think this is a huge week for him defensively. Uh, he's going to have to try to figure out how to probably guard Johnny Juzang. Again, we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, or maybe Jaime Yaquez, um for UCLA. He's probably going to have some time against Palo Banchero. He might have some time against Wendell Moore. He's going to be a huge piece of what Gonzaga tries to do this week. He, he's got to be tough. He's got to be physical. He's got to have those quick hands. If they run those half court traps, he's got to be really, really good in those. Got to get out in transition. I think there's a real chance that Anton Watson over the next three games scores less than 20 points total and still ends up being the second or third most important player for Gonzaga. He's going to have such an instrumental role in getting these games through because UCLA is really good. They got a lot of six foot six dudes who can really score the basketball at multiple different levels. Gonzaga's perimeter defense is good. It's better than it's been in the past. Hunter Salas, huge part of that. Nolan Hickman, good defensive player as well. Rasir Bolton, Andrew Embart, veteran, experienced guys who know how to handle good, talented guards on the other end of the floor. But Anton Watson and of course Chet Holmgren's rim protection is a critical part of this as well. That's almost almost doesn't need to be said. But these teams can shoot it a little bit from the outside too. And Gonzaga needs to find ways to harass them on the perimeter or not let them get to the mid-range, which is a spot that Juzang in particular really likes to score from, if they can try to find a way to prevent him from getting to those spots and getting good looks there, that's going to be critical. And the best person on this roster to do that is Anton Watson. Next question, I've already teased it twice. It comes from Nathan Keel at Nathan underscore Nation on Twitter who asks, What do you think the Zags defensive strategy is for Juzang? Zags have defensive versatility, but not sure there is one player that has the strength, athleticism, and length to make him uncomfortable. Is this a game where Watson gets a start for that purpose? So no, I don't think Anton Watson's gonna start. I think I don't Marfie doesn't usually change his starting rotation for situations like this. Like I, I don't I can't recall off the top of my head a situation where he's ever really done that for a matchup on an opposing player. It shows a whole ton of respect, and I'm quite sure that Mark View has a ton of respect for Johnny Juzang, and I do think it's possible Watson, not even possible, likely, that Watson plays more minutes in this game, is counted upon in a more significant way than usual in order to handle Johnny Juzang. But I agree, they don't have a specific player that can just straight up harass him for the entire game. They just don't have that guy. But I think what that allows them to do is to be a little bit more flexible and maybe throw different looks at him. When Anton Watson's in the game, I think he's probably one-on-one guarding him, and I think that's the best matchup Gonzaga has because he does have that length. He does have that physicality. He matches up with Juzang in that regard. Juzang is quicker than him, and that could present some problems. If Watson and Chet are in the game at the same time, it mitigates that a little bit because if Juzang is able to get past Watson and try to get to the rim, at least he has to then try to get by Chet Holmgren. Not an easy task for anybody, even Juzang, to do at this point. Beyond that, I think they throw Hunter Salas at him a little bit because he's got that athleticism and that quickness. Now Juzeng might try to bully him a little bit and push him around, and I think he might be able to do that, but it at least forces Juzeng to do things a little bit differently. I think there's an a outside chance that they put Chet on him in a one-on-one situation. I don't know how that would go necessarily, but I think they might at least try it. We saw Gonzaga put Chet on a smaller player Against it was the Bellerman game. They did that. They put him against their star guard there. Now that that guy was six foot eight, six foot nine, I think, so a little bit bigger than Juzang But I think it's possible that Gonzaga at least tries that. I think we'll see Nemhard guard him a little bit as well, just because of his experience and probably familiarity with his game from having played him last year. So I think Gonzaga. I think the the assessment that Gonzaga doesn't have any one player to handle Juzang is probably accurate. So I think that their strategy is maybe to be throw multiple players at him, multiple different looks at him, and see if they can kind of fluster him that way. This next question comes from Havila Benjamin on Twitter. He says, How does Gonzaga match up, that's a key word for this segment there, the matchups, match up against some of the more experienced, good three-point shooting teams in the country, like UCLA, Purdue, Villanova, etc.? What will be their game plan against teams that take and make a high percentage of their shots from three? So I'm not really sure this is like a, a big area of concern. For Gonzaga, if teams beat them by hitting a whole ton of threes, like that's, that's the way you kind of want to force teams to beat you. Now, in the past, Gonzaga has sometimes let teams beat them that way because they've sat in a zone for too long and not been aggressive defending the perimeter. I wouldn't want to see them do that. But I don't think that's going to be the case with this year's squad. This team has a ton of length and a lot of physicality out at the perimeter, something they haven't had in the past. Part of the reason, a big part of the reason they have that is not just personnel. It's because they have the confidence because of Chet Holmgren. It's really hard to understate Chet's defensive impact on this roster beyond just the statistical component. What Chet does when he's on the floor is he allows Gonzaga's perimeter players, namely Nemhard, Bolton, Salas, Strother, whomever it may be, to be far, far, far more aggressive on the perimeter. Teams that want to shoot from the outside are going to have guys right in their face, almost daring them to try to put the ball on the ground and get past them. In some cases, they will. In some cases, they'll pump fake. They might get a guy in the air or get a guy on his skates a bit and get past him. And then they have to try to score on Chet Holmgren. And as long as Chet Holmgren avoids foul trouble, which he's been a little up and down with uh, so far in his very young basketball career, if he's able to avoid that and just contests, 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 even if he doesn't get a bunch of blocks, makes it really hard to finish around him. That allows Gonzaga to be far, far more aggressive on the defensive perimeter, which makes it much harder for these teams that rely on the outside shot to get as many good looks. All right, last question of this segment is from Stephen DeWitt, S underscore DeWitt11 on Twitter, who asks, where will Timmy land on the all-time scoring list after this year? So I don't think he's going to quite break Gonzaga's top 10. Uh, Number 10 on that list is Jeff Brown, superstar player in the early 90s for Gonzaga. He scored 1,636 career points. Uh, Drew Timmy averaged 19 points per game in 32 games last year and scored 608 points. If he scored 608 points this year, he'd still be short of that. Uh, He's averaging a little over 19 points per game right now. He's at 20.8 through Gonzaga's first four games. I kind of expect him to end up around 19, though. I think he's going to have some some big, really fantastic games, obviously, like he did against Texas. He's also going to have some games where he's a bit more of a facilitator, like we saw against Alcorn State, where he set a career high in assists, but didn't have an overwhelming scoring night. So I kind of think like at the end of the year, you're looking at another season where he's around 19, maybe 20 points per game, uh, and hopefully, you know, 32 or 33 games for the season, in which case he's still right around 10th place all time in Gonzaga scoring history. All right, that's a wrap on what I call the matchups segment of this podcast. Um, Coming up, we're going to answer even more listener-submitted questions for the entire episode. Before we get there, though, I want to tell you about today's sponsor, PrizePix. PrizePix is daily fantasy made easy. I love this app, and I know that you will too. PrizePix is a leader in college sports daily fantasy. They offer more college football props than anyone in the world, and they offer all the star players from not only the Power 5 schools, but from your favorite mid-major programs as well. New users that deposit and use the promo code LOCKEDON will receive a 100% instant deposit match of up to $100. PricePix also allows mixed sport entries, so you can take the over on Chad Holmgren combined with the under on Patrick Mahomes in the same entry. Use the award-winning app on both the App Store and Google Play. Entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy. Don't hesitate. Check out PricePix.com now and use promo code LOCKEDON or go to your App Store and download the app today. PricePix is daily fantasy made easy. All right, segment two, answering more. Listeners submitted questions all episode long heading into one of the biggest weeks in Gonzaga basketball history. This first question comes from Miller Mike, 123 on Twitter who says, who on this year's team would you give the ball to um, in the final four with three seconds left? going the length of the court, recreating Suggs' shot from last year. Yeah, I think I think we all kind of guessed that's what we were doing here in this, this exercise. So some combination of speed up the court, long-range shooting, and clutch gene. So it's got to be Rissier Bolton. For me, it, it absolutely has to be. If, if this is a situation, length of the court, trying to get a shot up, it has to be Bolton. He's lightning fast, one of the fastest dudes I've ever seen in a Gonzaga uniform. He's an excellent three-point shooter so far this season. Now, he hasn't always been. An excellent three-point shooter. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that his numbers at Iowa State as an outside shooter were not great, but he's been very good for Gonzaga so far this season. And also, I don't know about the clutch gene because I don't know, A, I I debate whether that exists entirely, but also I, I I don't know whether he has that or not, but he has experience. He does not strike me as a player that would back away from this opportunity. I think he would want the basketball in this situation. He was the best player on the floor for his team for two full seasons at Iowa State. So he's been the man. He's been the dude who needs the ball in his hands at the end of games. Like, this is already a role he's familiar with. He's lightning fast, and he's a good outside shooter. For me, it's a slam dunk. If it's a half-court set, you throw the ball into Drew Timmy as best you can. If it's full length of the floor, Bob's got to go to Rasir Bolton. This next question comes from John via Gmail. It says, where does the consistent scoring threat come from when Gonzaga faces a bigger and more aggressive front front court than they have faced in the first three games? In years past, Gonzaga had players like Kispert, Norvell, Williams-Goss, and others who could be a consistent threat away from the basket. But this year, there doesn't seem to be that go-to consistent threat that can be relied upon if Timmy is bottled up. First point I would make is that Drew Timmy is very, very rarely going to get truly bottled up this season. He's just Better than every other front court player in the country, at least offensively. But I understand the question. I understand the point. Um, It's the same answer. It's going to be Rasir Bolton for me. He's been the most consistent go to scoring option on this roster outside of Drew Timmy. He's also been a consistent go to scoring option his entire collegiate career. Like I said, once Tyrese Halliburton went down with an injury at Iowa State, Bolton was the man for the rest of that season and the entirety of the next season. Now, Iowa State was bad, but it was not because of Rasir Bolton. He was very Very good. He's used to having the ball in his hands. He's used to having to create his own shot. He's been really good this year in part because he's been relied upon more as an off-the-ball scorer. So I don't know that his efficiency would be as good if he was relied upon to be like the go-to scorer, get the ball in his hands, get out of the way, let him go to work. But if the Zags needed him to do that, he can he's capable of it. Julian Strother is also an absolute bucket getter, very, very good offensive player. He's not as consistent, partly because he's really only played four or five legitimate games in college basketball. So you're going to see some kind of disappearing acts from him periodically. I think that's okay. So if you need a game where Drew Timmy doesn't have it, I think you go to Bolton first, just because of the experience he has as a facilitator, as a lead guard, as a go-to scorer type option. He's already done that before. So I think you go to him first. This next question comes from Jesse on Instagram. He says, is Rasir Bolton the incarnate Ryan Woolridge? So, yeah, we're talking Rasir Bolton here in segment number two. Uh, in some ways, yes. I think, obviously, I talked a lot in the first two questions about how Bolton was the man and he's coming to a program where he's no longer asked to be primary ball handler primary uh, go-to option scoring wise and what has happened because of that is his efficiency has gone up tremendously in that way he is very very similar to ryan woolridge who is of course the man for three seasons at north texas was extremely good there but was like the only really good player on those rosters so defenses could game plan against him very you know that's what they did is how do we stop ryan woolridge if we can stop him we can win this game And then when he came to Gonzaga, he was a far more efficient scorer because teams had to worry about a lot of other players on the roster instead of just Ryan Woolridge. That's what we've seen with Bolton. He's got the best efficiency numbers of his career, the best three-point shooting of his career, the best two-point shooting of his career. So in that way, yes. I think the biggest difference between these two players is Woolridge was still asked to be the point guard. His role as a point guard, as a facilitator, did not change when he went from North Texas to Gonzaga. He just got more talented players around him. Bolton, his role changed. He's no longer the point guard. When he's on the floor, he's almost always sharing the floor with either Andrew Nembhard or Nolan Hickman, sometimes both. In those situations, one of those two guys is playing the point guard. He is playing off the ball. That's a big difference. A big difference for him, a big difference for his style of play. Now, Gonzaga moves the ball around a lot in the top of the key, so it's not like he's not still handling the ball, looking to make the right pass, looking to make entry passes. He's still doing a lot of the same things he was doing in that situation, but I think it's a pretty significant difference between who Ryan Woolridge was in a Gonzaga uniform and who Rasir Bolton is in a Gonzaga uniform. That's a pretty key difference between the two. Next question comes from Garth Woldseth at Garth Woldseth on Twitter, who asks, who are your projected top three or five scorers in the preseason? And who would you say they are now? Have you there been any big changes? And then he says, Rasir has definitely climbed my rankings already. Yeah, before the season, I said three to five would be Strother, Bolton, and Salas, with one and two being Timmy and Chet. Uh, I think those five are still probably accurate. I would change the list quite a bit, though. I think Drew's still number one, obviously. Uh, number two, in my mind, is probably Strother. He's right now, he's pretty clearly Number two on the team in scoring, that's because he's had a few really big games. Obviously, through four games, uh, the the numbers are going to be a little bit skewed if you've had one or two great performances. Um, And I think Bolton and Chet are going to fight for three and four. I think there's a realistic chance that Chet is the fourth leading scorer on this team at the end of the season, which is pretty wild for a guy who is the number one recruit in the country to be fourth on your team in scoring and still be considered a lottery pick or a top five pick is wild. But that's how good and deep and talented this Gonzaga roster is. After that, I think Nembhard's probably 5, Salas Hickman 6-7 right in there, Anton Watson 8. That's kind of the range there, but I think the only thing that's really settled is Drew Timmy at number 1. I think Bolton, Strother, Chet all are going to fight for 2, 3, and 4, and it could, any given night, it's going to be very different. I think at the end of the season, I'd probably put my money on Strother being second, but it's really going to fluctuate throughout the year, which is part of the reason that this team is hard to defend, <laughs> is hard to beat, and part of the reason they're, they're going to be really good this year. This next question comes from Dad Risk on Twitter, who says, if a genie appeared and said you could trade Chet to Duke for Palo on this Zags team, would you do it? And he says, I'm not sure I expect you to be honest. Even if the answer is yes— Well, so with – okay, we'll start with this. With the current legal situation going on with Paolo Banchero, absolutely not. If that is in any way, shape, or form a factor in this equation, no, I'm not making that trade. Let's assume it's not because I'm assuming that that's not part of what we're talking about here. It's just which – basically the question is who fits better on this roster, Chet or Paolo. If that's the question, I'm still taking Chet. (laughs) I'm still doing it. I'm not lying. I'm not saying that just to – you know, because Chet's the guy currently on the roster. I do think it's close. I think it's very close. I think there's a reasonable argument for Banchero. For me, Banchero does a lot of his scoring around the rim. Drew Timmy does a lot of his scoring around the rim. Banchero hasn't shot the three particularly well so far in his collegiate career. He's shooting about 29%. Chet hasn't shot the ball extremely well from outside either, so I understand that that argument maybe falls flat for some people, but I expect Chet to be a better outside shooter as the season goes on than Banchero. That is a huge part of what makes Chet valuable offensively because – Gonzaga needs to clear the paint for Drew Timmy to go to work. Drew Timmy takes up a lot of space down there. He does a lot of spin moves. He moves around a lot. He needs space to work. If is going to be mostly a back-to-the-basket, scoring around-the-rim type guy, it creates a bit of a log jam down there, and it makes it a little bit harder for him to work. Chet can handle the ball. really. Not that Banchero can't. He can, too. But Chet can handle the ball well. He can shoot the three well. I think he just offers a little bit more spacing that Banchero doesn't offer. Even if you disagree with that, the main difference, the main reason is defensively. I talked about it a little bit already, but Chet's impact on this team defensively is monumental. I mean, it's massive. It's so, so critical what he's able to do on that end of the floor. Not just actually blocking shots, but altering shots, just serving as a rim protector. You know, we talked about it in the Texas game when Chet was on the floor, Texas took like I can't remember exactly how small it was like fifteen percent of their shots around the rim. When Chet wasn't on the floor, it was like close to fifty percent. Huge difference in how Chet and how Texas approached scoring. So even though Chet didn't have a great statistical game, he was a massive impact in that game. Banchero is not capable of doing that. He is not that level of rim protector, of defensive player at all. Gonzaga does not have that player on the roster if Chet Holmgren is not on this team. So for me, that's where it, that's the difference. Even if you argue that Banchero is a better fit offensively, and I think you can reasonably make that argument. There's no way that he's so much better offensively that it mitigates those defensive differences. So I'm taking Chen. Next question comes from Christian via Gmail. He says, Duke's handling of the Savarino-Banchero DWI is head-scratching to me. Institutions of higher learning need to be held to a higher standard, and the pattern seems to be to wait for university officials to step in. People are allowed to make mistakes and recover from these mistakes, but it just seems we are missing steps in the process. And one of the critical steps is taking responsibilities for one's actions or mistakes. So I'm not going to defend Duke. I'm not going to defend either of these two players, but this is, this is fairly standard. I don't think that the university is doing anything or the athletic department is doing anything that different than what other schools would do in a similar situation. That does not mean that it is right. (laughs) It is just, it is not uncommon to see athletic departments say, we're just gonna let the university handle this, we're gonna wipe our hands of it, and we're going to just kind of keep operating as if it kind of didn't happen until we get a word from the university. I don't think that's fair. It puts a lot of pressure on the university. They don't want to treat these students differently than they treat other students, but also it is it is different. The situation is different when it's a basketball player versus a regular student. You shouldn't treat it differently, but it's hard for them to figure out that balance. And when you put that onus on the overall university as a whole, as opposed to the athletic department, it puts some undue pressure on that side of campus that I think is unfair and can cause Kind of strife between those two things. So I agree. I think the athletic department, or Coach Shashevsky, or whomever makes those decisions there, should probably have taken a, a stronger stand earlier in this situation. But it's not that uncommon. <laughs> it's 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 kind of the modus operandi for how this stuff kind of works, unfortunately, in college in college athletics. All right, two segments down. Coming up, we're going to answer even more listener submitted questions. But before we get there, I want to tell you all about Built Bar. Bill bar is the best tasting protein bar ever, plain and simple. It's a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Bill bar has nine delicious flavors, including some all-time favorites like raspberry, mint brownie, peanut butter brownie, coconut, and my personal favorite, salted caramel. Of course, Bill Bar is not only great tasting, they are healthy too. Most Billbar flavors have 17 grams of protein, 130 calories, and only 4 grams of sugar. Nine amazing flavors, all tasty and all healthy. Go to billbar.com now and use promo code LOCKED15, and you'll get 15% off your first order. That's billbar.com, promo code LOCKED15, for 15% off your first order. All right, segment three, more listener-submitted questions for Mailbag Monday Having a huge week of Gonzaga Hoops. This first question comes from John via Gmail. Is what is the status of Dom Harris for this season? Do you think he plays at some point when conference play starts, or do you think he sits out the entire season to rest his foot? If he does play, how does Mark Few slot him into the rotation now that we have seen how Bolton, Salas, and Hickman all fit? So the short answer here is, I don't know. (laughs) If I had more information for you, I promise that I would share it. You'd see it on Twitter. You'd see it on whatever social media outlet you use to get Gonzaga information. We just don't know. I know that when the injury first happened and what it was reported to be was plantar fasciitis in his foot, that typically carries a six to 10 week timeline. The Duke game was the end of the 10 week timeline. That's the extent of what I can really tell you. I don't know how his recovery has gone. I don't know really a lot of details on the actual surgery that he had. So I I don't know. <laughs> um, my guess is he's not going to be around for at until conference play would be the absolute earliest and even then I'm probably expecting him not to play this season. Because but once you roll into like February or even mid January, once you get into that point, it's I don't want to say it's pointless because it's not, but it's a a lot more likely they're just gonna shut him down for the rest of the year, let him fully recover, all of that stuff. If he can start practicing with the team, great, he can do that, but they're just not really gonna get him into gameplay. And then that kind of leads into the second spot, which is they don't need him right now. Now Dom Harris is a good three point shooter. He's also reportedly a really, really good defensive defensive haven't seen that. It doesn't mean it's not true. It just means we haven't seen it yet. But if he's a great defensive player and a good three-point shooter, he could fit on this team. <laughs> they could absolutely use that. But right now, because they have four guards who are all playing well, who are all playing significant rotation minutes, it's easier to let him continue to recover and not not end up getting back into the fold. Obviously, if he gets fully healthy and can play a little bit, they might ease him back in, play him a little bit, You know, maybe five to seven minutes per night, kind of find spurts for him, particularly in games where... They can let him run a little bit more and kind of get an opportunity to go. But I would be surprised to see him at any point really jump into a full-on rotation spot this season. I just don't think that it's going to happen. John followed that up with another question about Dom Harris. He said, do you think Dom will be a part of the 2022 team, or do you think there is a reasonable chance he transfers to another program where he might get more of an opportunity? Let's assume that Salas and Hickman are back for next year. If we were able to land Anthony Black, where does Dom Harris fit into the rotation? Well, the Zags always play four guards. So if Hunter Salas returns, if Nolan Hickman returns, if Anthony Black's in the mix, there's still a fourth spot there. Obviously, Gonzaga has liked to peruse the grad transfer market for guards. That has been a popular thing they have done over the last few seasons with Aaron Cook and Bolton and Admon Gilder and Ryan Woolridge and so on and so forth, Geno Crandall, et cetera. So they'll probably want to look to do that. But if they get Salas, Hickman, Black, and Dom, I think they're going to be pretty darn happy with that guard rotation. I think in that mix, Dom plays a lot. Now, he still might be the fourth guard, especially if he misses this entire season. Then he's, he's still kind of behind the sticks. Salas and Hickman will have probably jumped him. Black is a really, really talented guard. You know, we'll talk about him more on another time when we have more opportunity to explore some of the recruit stuff. But if they land him, it's, it does create a bit of a, a situation where Dom is maybe harder to find playing time. I would be surprised if he transferred without ever getting a chance to play. I, I would be surprised. He was so committed to this program. He was, you know, a, he helped recruit Jalen Suggs to the program. He helped recruit Julian Strother to the program. He seems to have this big allegiance to Gonzaga. It does not mean that he will not transfer. I would be surprised if it happened unless he gets word that he's really not going to play. If Gonzaga lands anthony black and then immediately starts when the season's over immediately starts looking for a grad transfer guard and dom knows that then then maybe it's a different conversation maybe he feels like the writing's on the wall he's not going to get a chance he's going to look elsewhere but i would overall i would say there's a less than 50 less than 30 percent chance that he's not in a gonzaga uniform next season next question another one from christian via gmail is the WCC better than the Pac-12 this season? I love it. I lo- it's a great start to a question, Christian. He says, you have mentioned previously that a WCC versus Pac-12 challenge would be fun and a great annual tradition. Uh, no. <laughs> no, they're not. Uh, sorry. Uh, they're they're close. They're closer than they've ever been. Uh, the bottom of the Pac-12 is still ahead of the bottom of the WCC, and the middle is probably still skewed slightly towards the Pac-12, although it's closer. The top half is very close. Gonzaga's better than everybody in the Pac-12. BYU is... No, they're not better than UCLA, but they're better than everybody else in the Pac-12. St. Mary's and San Francisco are comparable with the top four or five teams in the Pac-12. They really are. Outside of that, though, it skews, in my mind, fairly fa- fairly comfortably in the side of the Pac-12. Cal and UW are pretty darn bad. Don't get me wrong. They're not good. They wouldn't be good in the WCC. They're just bad basketball teams. But everybody else in the Pac-12 is comfortably ahead of everybody else in the WCC. But it's as close as it's ever been. As the year goes on, it'll separate a little bit more. The Pac-12 will kind of beat each other up, but they'll get signature wins enough that they're all comfortably in the top 150, 175 of the you know Ken Palm rankings. Whereas the WCC will have some teams in the you know high 100s, maybe even early 200s. So it'll it won't quite look as as close as it is right now, but it's. It's good. It's good that WCC is challenging this. It's good that this isn't a ridiculous question. This is a legitimate question that we can talk about. Uh, WCC versus Pac-12 would be great. They already have so many non-conference games between the two of these, you know, between the WCC and the Pac-12. They already play a lot. So adding it to be an official thing where they each found at least one way to play a game against them would be so much fun. I don't think the Pac will go for it. I don't really blame them, but I think it would be super fun. Next question comes from Yank Zags on Twitter who asks, Best non-Gonzaga team that you've seen so far this season? He says, for me, it's Purdue. they got good size and electric guard and shooting. Yeah, it's Purdue for me, too. Purdue or UCLA. Uh, And honestly, Villanova. (laughs) They are the best two-loss team I've ever seen in my life. They are so good. For those who don't know, the two teams that they've lost to are... Purdue and UCLA, the two teams that I just mentioned. Villanova was close against both those teams. They were beating both teams by 10 points with nine minutes to go, but Villanova doesn't have a ton of depth, and that exposed them in both those games where the other two teams came back and won. I haven't seen a lot of Kansas, and frankly, I haven't seen a lot of Duke yet, so I don't really have a, a bunch to comment there. Both those teams are very good, as they usually are, and I'm sure when I see them, I'll think that they look really good because they are, but I, I'll leave them out of this. Purdue, I watched them today against Villanova. They looked excellent. They looked excellent they have so much size. Zach Edey is huge, 7 foot 4 big man. He's got a pretty good amount of skill for a guy his size. Uh, somebody who could really match up with Chet, I'd love to see it if I could. Jaden Ivey, their star guard is electric, super super good. Purdue is going to be tough. UCLA, we're going to see them a ton, obviously on Tuesday. I've already watched them a bunch of times. When you return 93% of your minutes from a team that went to the final four, you're going to be pretty darn good. And that's been the case with them so far this season and will continue to be the case throughout the year. Next question comes from Kenny Osmus on Twitter. He says, what is your favorite Zags piece of memorabilia in your cave? So I want to be clear for those of you watching on YouTube, this is not my man cave. We are not currently in our house. We're moving into our house in about a month. So when you see the background change, you can send me a congratulations. That means that we are officially in our house. But the best stuff that I have, the best thing that I have, number one, is a framed photo of the Gonzaga-Portland game from 2013. It was the first game Gonzaga played in the kennel as the number one ranked team in the country. First time they ever did that. It was a very cool event. It was senior night for myself as well as for Mike Hart and Elias Harris and Kelly O'Linick. He wasn't a senior, but everybody knew he was going to the NBA, and, of course, he did. I was in the kennel club. That was how I got this. It was kind of our gift for the end of the season. Huge, beautiful framed photo. You can see the entire kennel. You can see the action on the floor. You can see myself, which makes it particularly cool. I can see myself in the in, in the first row cheering on the team. Really, really, really cool thing that I can't wait to have hanging behind me when I get my own office. Beyond that, framed photo of the Sports Illustrated cover of Kelly Olinick from my senior season because or his his junior season, my senior year at Gonzaga. Not season. I didn't I didn't play, but I'm in that picture. I was. I was one of the people selected to be uh, as a fan in that cover so you can see me there if you ever pull up that picture you'll see me right in the middle with my blue top top hat on pumping my fist it's a pretty great thing I have a couple copies of that Sports Illustrated and I got one of them framed so those are probably my two top things I also really love I have a bunch of jerseys bunch of Gonzaga jerseys my favorite one is probably an old Atlanta Hawks Dan Dickow jersey that I found on eBay a long time ago I wear that a lot for 4th of July super super fun jersey And the last question of the show comes from James via Gmail. He says, do you know if there's any chance of Colby Brooks playing in a game this year? He said, I'm asking because I've got a four-year-old named Brooks and a 14-month-old named Colby, so we've obviously adopted a new favorite walk-on. He didn't get in against Alcorn or Bellerman when it seemed like everyone else did. Should I plan on waiting another year? James also said, you don't have to answer this on the podcast if you don't want to, which, James, how would I not want to talk about this? This is a fantastic question. I love talking about walk-ons. I think this is an adorable story. I also think I have to disappoint you and say, yeah, he's probably not going to play this year. The games where he would have played have already happened. He did not play against Alcorn State, like you said, or Dixie State or Bellarmine. The only walk-ons who we've seen get into the game are Joe Few, Will Graves, and Matthew Ling. We have not seen Colby Brooks. We have not seen Abe Eagle. Both of those guys were on the roster last year and did not play in a single game either. So I don't know whether, I don't don't think they're getting a second redshirt year. I'm guessing they're just not a part of Gonzaga's active roster for the season. No idea what that means for their future, whether they want to stick around as as walk-ons in the future and and kind of take over when Will Graves and Matthew Lang are gone, whether they're going to look to go play somewhere else, whether they're going to become regular students, for lack of a better term, and, and leave the basketball program, I don't know. I would love to see Colby Brooks get in the game. He was actually a, a very good high school player in a competitive league in the L.A. area. So he, he's probably pretty good. <laughs> he can play a little bit. So I think that would be super cool to see him get some action. Uh, obviously, it would be very cool for James and his family as well. So hopefully hopefully that's a chance. But I I don't think it's going to happen this year. All right, that is going to do it for today. The first of five great episodes coming your way this week in what is one of the greatest weeks in Gonzaga basketball history. Obviously, we got Central Michigan tonight, depending on when you're listening to this on Monday night. Tuesday's show is going to be a recap of that, a big preview of the UCLA game. We're going to review UCLA on Wednesday and do WCC Wednesday. Thursday, Andy Locks, it's coming out. Don't worry. Get me your hot takes. You can listen to them after you've had your turkey while the tryptophan is setting in and you're taking your little nap after dinner Check out Andy Locks then, and then on Friday, I got a guest coming on the show. We're going to talk all things Gonzaga versus Duke. Super fun week, all right here on the Locked On Zags podcast and Locked On Zags YouTube channel. Hit that subscribe button if you have not already. You can also find me on Twitter at ScoreZagScore. The podcast is on Twitter as well at Locked On Zags. Finally, thank you again for making the show your first listen of the day. Now is a great time to make your next listen the Locked On Bets podcast. Locked on Bets is hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis from Insight, Expert Analysis and Insight, excuse me, from Lee Sterling, and it is your daily one-stop shop for all of your gambling needs. All right, thank you all for listening and go zags.